Hello, I'm Somi Aryan. I'm the founder of the Think Tank for Women in Business and Technology and the FemPeak platform, with the mission of raising women's socioeconomic status. In today's episode, you will hear an interview with someone that I'm a huge fan of. Lisa Feldman Barrett is a professor of psychology at Northeastern University, and she is the author of two fascinating books, How Emotions Are Made and Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Lisa and I discuss, well, how emotions are made. In the past, many people believed that emotions lived in certain areas of the brain and that all humans expressed them in a similar way. But Professor Feldman Barrett shows that emotions are constructed by the whole system rather than being triggered and that they can't be found in a specific part of the brain. This is pretty revolutionary in how we think of human emotions and has profound indications for how we control our emotions. It also challenges the traditional notions around emotions that we associate with male or female brains or people of different ethnic backgrounds. With that being said, let's dive right into the conversation with Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett. I was wondering maybe you could give people a quick overview of your research and work. And today I want to mainly talk to you about um, the implications of your research for women, you know, especially for pro professional women, uh, and how um, we understand ourselves, especially because um, when reading your book, what, was, what really stood out for me was the, there was a, the line about, you know, like, which basically said, I, it's my understanding that it was your essential um, or your central thesis was that emotions are made they are not triggered. They're not something that are there. And you just, you know, because we always uh, are branded as emotional beings as women, you know, and, and it's like, oh, don't do this or don't do that. It will it trigger, you know, the so-and-so's emotions. And, and this whole concept of being emotional has actually held us back in some areas, you know, in, in many areas of... There's actually no evidence that women are more emotional than men at all, actually, I have to tell you. That's exactly uh, what I was hoping to hear. <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of evidence to discuss there. And I've actually written specifically some things on, I've, we've published papers ourselves, but there are other papers that have been published. And um, I have a lot to say about this because I have to tell you, science and academia are also a domain... <laughs> where uh, women uh, have to manage. In fact, I just sent an email to a colleague of mine admonishing him for not citing our work and saying, you know, I'm not being grubby about citations. I don't really care. But there is an implicit bias against citing papers by women. And that's been, those studies have been, have documented that again and again and again. So I'm doing a public service here and telling you you know about these papers and you really should be citing them. And, and, you know, I'm just kind of reminding you in a nice way. So I hope you take this in the collegial way it's meant. I'm not, you know, and, and I do this for other women too. So I'll, if I'm reading a paper and I notice somebody hasn't cited a woman, I just email that person and say, you really should be citing this, you know, so-and-so's work. It happens much less rarely because men know to cite each other. That's the bias. And women, there's such bias in science for women. And it's very subtle and it used to be not so subtle. Now it's more subtle. And I would say, you know, my husband works in technology and I would say even in the more enlightened companies, it's still there. It's just subtler. So it's actually harder to recognize than when it's really overt, you know, 
Um, and that's why these kinds of conversations are, are really important. And I'll just say one other thing. I have a former graduate student who is now an associate professor, is about to be promoted to full. She's a powerhouse, an absolute powerhouse. And she and I did these studies on, on the perception, the misperception of women as emotional, okay? Like we were investigating, how does this happen? But she actually went into a meeting with one of her senior colleagues who was misperceiving her as being emotional. Like it was exactly the thing that she and I had studied together 10 years ago. And, but it was so subtle. And because she was in it, she didn't understand. She, you know, the, the person was sort of personalizing her behavior as emotional when in fact she was being completely reasonable. And, um, and if she had been a man, you know, uh, the whole thing would have unfolded differently. But my point is that she didn't recognize it in the moment. I had to point it out afterwards to her. You realize that this is exactly what that paper was about. And she was like, oh my God, I didn't even, it was so subtle. I just missed it. And I was like, yeah, that's why we have to talk to each other about these things. So would you say that we are misperceiving ourselves as well? Yes. I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, women are as biased against women as men are like, you know uh, you know everybody perceives in the exact same behaviors facial movements vocalizations gestures people perceive the exact same movements in a man as evidence that he is responding to his situation in a way so they attribute the cause of his expressiveness to the situation, right? If he's he scowls or he is, you know, has a sharp tone, the the inference is that something's wrong in the situation and he's responding to it. Whereas the inference more likely for a woman would be she's just emotional, you know? So it's sort of the adage is, you know, she's a bitch and he's having a hard day. You know, and we really saw this play out in the United States in the um, 2016 election, actually. And I wrote a couple of columns for the New York Times about this um, because it was so obvious um, that that's what was happening. And the science predicted it exactly. You know, um, it's frustrating. I mean, you know, what I said, like to say is, you know, as a scientist, I find it fascinating and um intriguing. And as a woman, I find it really, really frustrating. <laughs> so it's not in our imagination. So that is actually the case because, you know, a lot of times when I have these discussions with, with gentlemen, they say that this is just in your imagination. That's not the case. Um, so, but, but the biases are real and they are, oh, they're absolutely real. And they're, the biases are sometimes the active presence of something, but sometimes they're the absence of something. So for example, I'm sure you've had this experience. I know I have a number of times where I'll be in a meeting and it's particularly salient when there are mostly men in the meeting. So if I'm the only woman in a meeting, it's definitely going to happen, even though I tend to have a very strong presence, right? In a meeting, um, I'll say something, it will be ignored. I will say something again, it will be ignored. And then if a man repeats what I say, they will attribute it to the man, 
they'll right as if I right and so now but I now what I do when I go into a meeting especially with people I don't know is um and if there's a gender imbalance is I just call it out before it happens right I say you know you'll know if this is how I'm sure you guys won't do it because I'm sure you're all really enlightened but you'll know if it's happening because I will become I'll become stronger in my uh, emphasis, which you will perceive as be- me being strident. Mm-hmm. So if you perceive me being strident, it's just probably that you've ignored what I've said several times and I'm just trying to make a point. That's how you'll know by your own inference, right? And what was really interesting is that in fact it did happen. And two guys came up to me at, this was actually at a major tech company where I was the only woman in the room, 25 scientists. And I was the only woman in the room and I sort of called it out beforehand. I say, as we were all introducing ourselves, right? I was like, well, you'll notice that I'm the only one here with breasts. And so, you know, here's, here's my experience in the past, you know, in the past, I'm sure you guys won't do this, you know? Um, and then when it happened, two guys came up to me afterwards and said, thank you so much. That was like super helpful. And I totally never realized this was happening before and I could see it happening. And now I know, and I know to, you know, work hard to call it out or make sure that it doesn't happen in, in the future. And I was like, that's amazing because all you really need are a couple of allies who can say, oh no, I didn't say this. Lisa said it, or, you know, Somi said it. Actually, that was Somi's point. Um, that's all you need to sort of shift the, you know, the tide, just a little, yeah. But so I think the bias is often in the absence of things as well as in the presence of things. That's a very important point. So I want to talk to you about this whole thing of being the only woman in the room, because one of the biggest problems we have is that we don't have enough of a precedence for women in many areas you know, there's just uh, historically, they're just they haven't been uh, recognized. You know, even even where they have made the contribution, like for example, I always give the example of Henrietta Leavitt, you know, who uh, w- made such a huge contribution to what now became the Hubble Telescope. In my head, it's a Leavitt Telescope, you know, because if it wasn't for her contribution, yeah, uh, you know, Hubble wouldn't have got that that recognition. So, so when things like that happens. Uh, historically it has happened. So, so what is, it has done is made it harder for us to break that barrier and, and that uh, create that precedence, right? When you look at the four-minute mile, you know, for many years we thought that it was impossible. One person did it and then so many happened. It happened to so many. So what I'm trying to build with this um, platform is to create a, a momentum for that uh, precedence to take place in many areas so that then from there people can go in and, and it's a very uh, ambitious project but at the same time as women we are used to being told oh don't aim so high you know just like stick to something smaller no i don't want to do it i i've decided not to have children and i've uh, you know sacrificed quite a life sacrificed a relationship that mat- mattered massively to me in order to be able to pursue what i what i really want to pursue so um, it's, so on this issue of beer, because we are constantly telling people, women, okay, we need to raise our confidence, right? Um, but if you are in the only person in the room, I guess 
um, it, it makes it a lot harder. So I guess what you did was that you called it out. I just want to say a couple of things. First of all, I think that imposter syndrome is not unique to women, but women do suffer from it somewhat more, right? This feeling that you're not confident, you don't um, feel like you have the chops to do whatever, and that somebody else is going to um, find out, you know, or you're going to commit to something that you can't actually accomplish. There, I think there are a couple of things to, to understand, I think. First of all, I think it's important to understand when your feelings are diagnostic of something and when they're not, or what they're diagnostic of. So let me back up and say, every moment of your life, your brain, your brain's most important job, this is something I talk about in How Emotions Are Made, but it's also in this in the new book, you know, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Your brain's most important job is not thinking. It's not feeling. It's not seeing. It's actually to regulate the systems of your body. That's your brain's most important job. That's what it's always doing. And everything else it does, it does in the service of regulating your body. So you don't experience every feeling you have, every hug you give, every insult you bear as relating somehow to the state of your body. But in fact, that is what's going on under the hood in your brain. So your brain is always really managing your body. And the there's a technical term for this, a scientific term called allostasis. But the metaphor that I use for people is body budgeting. Your brain is running a budget for your body. And it's not budgeting money, it's budgeting, you know, glucose and water and salt and oxygen and all the, you know, chemicals and nutrients that you need to, to stay alive and keep healthy. And so you can think about eating and sleeping as um, deposits into that body budget. And you can think about exercise as an expenditure, but it's like an investment that you're expecting to get a return on. And um, every new thing that you learn, every hard thing that you do is an expenditure of some sort, right? The two most important, the two most expensive things your brain can do is move your body and learn something new. Face uncertainty, extremely expensive for a human brain. Okay. So as your brain is doing this budgeting, your body is sending sense data back to your brain. Now, you know, most of the time I say to people, well, you know, you don't, you don't really, you're not aware of the whole internal drama going on inside your own body. There's like a lot going on in there. Um, and most of the time you're really unaware of it. And as women, I think we know this because we also know that at certain times of the month, we're very aware <laughs> of what's going on inside there. And it's really uncomfortable. The, the point is that most of the time though, we don't experience all the contractions and the squirts and the, you know, expansion and the whatever, you know, we're not experiencing that as sensations in the body. We're experiencing it as these really simple feelings, feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable, feeling worked up, feeling calm. These are, this is what scientists call affect. The average person calls mood. This is mood. The thing is that when something perturbs your mood. So something from the outside world. So something perturbs your mood. Something happens in the world. You feel it as a disruption. You, you feel it as tension or you feel it as, um, you know, if, if you feel it as uh, 
tension or um, there's an increase in arousal, and I don't mean sexual arousal, I mean like an increase in kind of alertness or jitteriness, which is partly happens because of the chemicals that your brain is preparing you to learn, you know, preparing itself to learn something, it sort of increases arousal. We tend to experience that as anxiety or lack of confidence, but it's actually just your brain preparing you to do something hard. And you can have that feeling and you can make meaning out of it in very different ways. So there's this research which shows that people who suffer from serious test anxiety, serious enough that they fail courses and maybe don't finish college which or university, which has a huge impact on their future earning potential, they can learn to take that arousal and make a different meaning out of it. This is what emotions are. Emotions are the way that you make meaning out of your internal sensations and these simple feelings in relation to what's going on around you in the world. So you can take people who have test anxiety and you can train them not to reduce their arousal because you don't want that actually. That means you wouldn't, you wouldn't be preparing yourself to perform. You can teach them though to um, experience that as determination. And when they do, the data show again and again and again, study after study after study, that they conquer their test anxiety. They don't have it anymore. It doesn't go away right away. You have to struggle with yourself. You have to practice recategorizing, we would say, or making me- different meaning out of that arousal. You practice it. It's hard at first. It's kind of like driving. You know, you, you, you have to give a lot of effort to it. It's like you know, exercise. You're giving effort to something. Um, that's going to pay off later. But eventually, like driving, you know, you get better at it, it gets easier, it gets more automatic, and then you just kind of automatically go to that interpretation or that meaning. And then people finish courses, and they finish school, and they do well, you know, in their earning potential. I saw my, I tell this story in How Emotions Are Made, that when my daughter was 12 years old, she was testing for her black belt in karate. She's this tiny little thing, right? With these like big hulking, you know, adolescent boys. It's just a tiny little thing. And her sensei, who was a 10th degree black belt, I think there are like five of those in like the United States, (laughs) said to her, get your butterflies flying in formation. And I just thought, you know, he didn't say to her, oh, little girl, don't be, you know, don't, you know, you can have confidence. You know, the truth is, she didn't know she was going to pass. She did pass. She didn't know she was going to pass, but he just said, get your butterflies flying in formation, which is exactly the right, that's, that's exactly the right meaning to make of that arousal. So I guess what I want to say is the first thing is you have to understand how to make meaning out of your, out of the sensations from your body. The go-to um, meaning that we have in the, in North America, really, and maybe in the Western world, I don't know, is that high arousal, especially in conditions of uncertainty, is anxiety or lack of confidence or, um, you know, general kind of stress. All stress is, is your brain preparing your body for a big metabolic outlay. Cortisol is not a stress hormone. It's a hormone that gets glucose into your bloodstream fast because your brain is predicting some big metabolic thing is going to happen. Either you're going to drag your ass out of bed in the morning or you're going to exercise, right? Or you're going to learn something hard or if things are really uncertain, there's just an opportunity to, um, to observe and, and learn. And all of these things are really expensive. But the other thing that I would say is if you do feel not confident and you can't recategorize or reconceptualize the emotion you're having. You can't take 
you know, anxiety and dissolve it into enthusiasm or, or determination, then what I would suggest that you do is have a coach, have somebody who you can talk to before and after the event, whoever that is, right? So for, for all of my graduate students and postdocs, that's me. So they come to me at least every, each one of them. And I mostly mentor women, I should say. So my lab is very well known for producing, yeah, very successful female scientists. There's always a point, you know, at the end of their first year, beginning of their second year, where they come to me in tears. They can't do it. They just can't do it. They're really convinced they can't do it. And then I say, well, do you think I'm a smart person? And they're like, well, of course. And I said, well, do you think that I would invest my time and energy in somebody who couldn't do it? Well, no, I would, you know, no, of course. Right. So basically I say, look, if you don't feel that way, that's okay. You can just trust me. Just trust me for, just trust me. And I'll tell you, I really will tell you if I think you can't do it, I really will tell you. And I actually really have told on occasion, you know, this is not the right fit for you. Let's find something you're really good at, but this isn't it. But most of the time they trust me and it all works out fine. And then they go and they do that with their students. And that's different from saying fake it till you make it. Sometimes you're, you know, these inner feelings that you have are always diagnostic. The question is, what the hell are they diagnostic of? Sometimes you're, you have high arousal because you just didn't sleep well enough. Your stomach is killing you because you just didn't get enough sleep. Sometimes you're really dragged out and you're not depressed. You're just dehydrated, actually. You know, dehydration causes you to feel sleepy and tired and sluggish and like you just don't want to move. So it's tricky to figure out what these, um, what these feelings mean, but they're not emotions. You know, they're, these simple feelings are with you every waking moment of your life because your brain is always budgeting for your body. Your body's always sending sense data back to your brain. So you are always having these feelings. Everybody always has them. Even if you're male, everyone has them. Sometimes they're in the foreground. Sometimes they're in the background, but they're always there and we make meaning out of them. Uh, and that's when we make emotion, right? Emotions are not built into your brain from birth to be triggered. They are built by your brain automatically using what you know. And you can hijack that process and train it to work differently. No, it's it's fascinating. Um, I um, I'm someone who grew up with ADHD. You know, I've had ADHD all my life, and um, I still do. And somehow I managed to interpret that anxiety that you get from, you know, what it's arousal, but it's arousal, yes. arousal. Yeah, I, I managed yeah. to interpret that as, as a positive, um, you know, it, oh, it fuels, you know, it fuels like I, you know, if I show you a picture of where I was born and brought up in, in Tehran, you know, I came to the UK in 2005, paid for my own education, came here with one suitcase, you know, now I'm running a successful business and I'm building this, this thing. And I taught myself English. So all of those things that were uh, a point of, you know, that, that in many, many instances, like for example, public speaking, I, uh, you know, when I started public speaking in English, English is not my first language, not even my second language, I learned it as a foreign language. In many cases, you know, my voice was trembling. I didn't care. I still did it. 
you know, um, there were times that I went to the toilet and cried and then came back out and I still did it. And and I still posted those videos on on my LinkedIn and social media. And they actually went on to get me um, amazing opportunities. You know, I was flown to Japan to give a talk for eight minutes, you know. So so, um, a lot of times people used to message me uh, privately and say, um, Somi, your voice, is, like the content of what you're saying is amazing, but your voice is trembling. And I responded saying, I'm not a presenter. You know, I'm somebody who has a knowledge that's sharing with you. So you should focus on what I'm saying and not how I'm saying it. That's how I used to respond to them. Yeah. And, and, you know, because I knew that if I let that get to me, then I can't go out and, and deliver those things. So despite being afraid, um, and despite having that anxiety and that's, um, you know, what would have been many in many ways interpreted as lack of confidence, uh, I actually think that I have a very high level of confidence because I do these things despite being afraid. But I guess I would say a couple of things there, Somi. The first thing I would say is that, you know, bravery is not lack of fear, okay? It's doing the thing that you're afraid of in the presence of fear. That's what bravery is, right? But second, I would say... There are many ways to understand the meaning of what your shaking voice. So one one way to understand it is that you were afraid, is that you were anxious. Another way to understand it is that you were you had very high arousal because this was a really uncertain, un, unusual thing for you to do. Yep. And those aren't synonyms. Mm-hmm. One has a valence. It feels bad. The other is neutral. It's just a description. It's not an evaluation of anything. It's just a description. And I would say this is a really important thing to understand when it, particularly when it comes to sex differences, we are always inferring the meaning of other people's movements, of the sounds they make, of the movements they make. We don't read people's body language because there is no such thing as body language. People move and we make inferences and we we make inferences about the meaning of their movements the exact same way that we make inferences about the meaning of our own you know internal sensations we don't read emotion in the face cuz the face isn't like a set of words to be read on the page we're guessing we're guessing so i've had situations where i gave this one talk a c span talk uh, which is a, in the United States, it's a, um, a public um, television station where um, people, you know, talk about books and, as well as other things. And I was wearing this black leather jacket and a beautiful silk scarf, which I refused to take off because it was so pretty. But the thing is, it kept sliding. I'd never worn them together before. And it kept sliding, <laughs> you know, as I was talking and being filmed, it kept sliding down one side. So I would pull it, you know, as I was talking, I was just pulling it. Now, That was actually hard to do because I was like giving a reading, doing a talk, and I was trying to make, you know, I should have just pulled the whole bloody thing off, but I just, you know, I just didn't. Anyways, the number of emails I got from people saying, well, you seemed really anxious because you were fiddling with your scarf. And I was like, I was fiddling with my scarf because... I was stubborn and I didn't want to take it off and it kept sliding and I was actually tracking it while I was giving this talk, which, and I gave the talk flawlessly, you know, you couldn't tell that my mind was actually on this, you know, thing. I've had, I had another situation recently where I had to tape a big keynote address and um, as is often the case, I was doing it very late at night because 
I also run a full lab, right? So I, I run two labs actually, and I do this public scientific outreach. So it's a lot. It's okay. It's a lot though. Um, so I was doing it, it was 1030 and I happened to have a headache that day. I had a really bad migraine that day. So I'd taken, um, some medication that really dried my mouth out. So I had a dry mouth from having a headache. It was 1030 at night. I was exhausted, but I was giving this talk. And so <laughs> you know, whenever I would like make a big point, I would rest for a minute, like pause to let the, like the, let the audience kind of take it in. Cause it, I was videotaping it. Right. But yeah, I figured they'll, they'll need a moment to take it in. And then I would lick my lips in that moment because you can't pick up a cup and drink it on, you know, on camera. <laughs> so I was in a meeting a couple of weeks later with a woman, actually, she said to me, well, I think that you were really uncomfortable about what you were saying. And I was like, no, I was actually very comfortable with what I was saying. It was provocative, but I totally stand behind what I was saying. And there's science to back up what I was saying. And she was like, well, I, I think that you were, I think you weren't quite sure because, you know, you were licking your lips. And I said, let me tell you something. And of course, what were we debating? We were debating whether or not you can read emotion in someone's face, right? So she was on the side of, you can read emotion in someone's face. There are micro expressions. You can read them. And I was like, no, you're always inferring. You're always interpreting. And so what did this whole thing demonstrate? This whole thing, more than any piece of data, demonstrated that um, she was inferring something, not having had, you know, uh, a whole background uh, of understanding of what was actually going on inside my body. And even the most confident people, people who confidently, they're confident that they can read other people well, are just guessing. And it, on average, in many cultures, I will say, um, we guess differently for men and women. And we're unaware that we do it. And as women, and also our male allies, we have to remind each other of that. I think it's, you can't do this by yourself with all of your accomplishments. You know, you didn't, you didn't do them by yourself. I mean, you did them largely driven by your own. You probably had your own drive, but I'm guessing that you had family or friends or somebody, you know, when I go to, when I go to give a lecture or a big address, sometimes it's happened to me where someone in the audience has gotten so mad at me. I actually had a colleague once threatened to punch me actually after a talk I gave. It's just, I talk about this in the book, but it is, this is true. Actually, it's a true story. I remember it. Yeah. You mentioned um, it. And no, you didn't know, say the punch, but you said that the, they were very angry at some of the, they were, they were, no, he three, he literally threatened to punch me. Would you like me to punch you to show, to demonstrate to you what anger really oh, yes, looks like? Yes. Yes. You said that. Yeah. The kinds of things that some some people have said to me to demonstrate to me that, you know, uh, emotion to demonstrate to me that emotions are like built into your brain from birth is just remarkable. But, but, you know, I guess my point is that, um, never will you ever see me cry on stage. I might go back to my room afterwards and cry and then I'll have friends there, you know, other women who are scientists too, who can say, no, you did a fine job or you did a great job or, well, it wasn't the best job I've ever seen you do, but you didn't embarrass yourself. So it was really okay. You know, friends who are going to tell you the truth, maybe have a little more compassion for you than you might be able to muster for yourself. <laughs> and then you can do that for other people. You know, you can give other people strength when they might not, might not have it necessarily. Cause not everybody is like you and me where we're willing to go out and do something hard and not worry about, 
I wouldn't say that I don't worry about making a fool of myself. I just do it anyway. I do it anyway. And then I come back and I worry about it afterwards. And then I, and then I, but then I allow other people to give me feedback. Um, and, um, very rarely, I I won't say I've never made a fool of myself, but very rarely has that ever happened. Um, but you just, you have to have, you have to have like a cheering section. And the thing that I think women often don't understand is that men have that cheering section built in and women don't women believe the women. I mean, I don't mean to to make gross generalizations, but in my experience, the women that I know in professional settings tend to believe that everything is success is based on meritocracy. I just have to be a hundred times better than that guy. And then I'm, you know, I don't just need to be as good as him. I need to be a hundred times better. That's actually a very independent way of thinking as opposed to a collectivist way of thinking. So if you're from Tehran, that's a, that's a culture that's much more collectivist where people much more dependent, their, their relationships with each other are more important than say the traditional stereotype of like an American life where, you know, you're independent and, you know, you're fine on your own and blah, blah. But men, men seem to, men are so collectivist when they are in, jobs like they help each other all the time they do it without even thinking about it and the important thing to understand here is that we are social animals we regulate each other's nervous systems without even realizing it we make deposits and withdrawals into each other's body budgets figuratively speaking so would you say that contrary to public belief because usually people say women are more for collaboration. But from what you're telling me is that actually men are better at collaboration. I think that because people usually say, oh, women are more collaborative and men are no, more. No, no, I wouldn't. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it that way. Here's what I would say. I would say I've met lots of men who are very collaborative. I think it's too simplistic to say women are collaborative and men are competitive. Men, when they are promoting themselves, they partially do that by promoting younger men who they chaperone into positions and they do it without even thinking. So they are being collectivistic in the sense that they, they help each other get into positions of power because they, they don't talk about it. They don't sit down and say, okay, Somi, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to promote you. And then when you get into that position, you're going to promote me. And then when I get into that position, I'm going to scaffold you up one more. You know, they don't have those kinds of conversations. They just do it. They just do it. That's what an old boys club is. Yeah. Okay. Wingman. Yeah. Like they call, they say, each other, we have wingman, but we don't have wing woman. <laughs> but women don't do this. So one of the, don't, because they, because we aren't part of the old boys club. So we can't see that it exists and we, um, but we could do it. And in fact, I know some very strategic women scientists who have done exactly that. And it's exactly the right thing to do, I think. So this is a conversation I explicitly have with my peeps. You know, this is something men just know how to do. I, because they've watched other men do it because it's been done for them. I don't know. Women don't do it as much. So I wouldn't say that women aren't collaborative. It's that in actually women, to some extent, 
I mean, I've met women who are very collaborative and I've met women who are, their tendency is to not be collaborative. And I've met men who are very collaborative and I've met men who aren't. I'm just talking about in terms of understanding how to secure power and build it. Men understand that they have to build alliances with other men to do it. And they just do it naturally. And women don't. Yeah, I agree with you. So actually, when I started this movement, I made a little um, animation, not animation, like a, a little graphic of showing women being at home, you know, because I was trying to explain what happened. So I was like, basically going back to the hunter gatherers. So it was like men had to collaborate to go hunting together, right? because they had to go and, and build something. They had to collaborate and work together to go and get that, you know, whatever it is that they were hunting and then bring back. Whereas women were more having to be on their own with the kids and with like, you know, so they didn't get this. Yes, you could say that they maybe sat around and, and maybe cooked together in some communities, but, but it wasn't quite the same level of, because they still each had their own homes, right? I would resist that in the following sense. I think what we understand about hunter-gatherers is actually somewhat different from that stereotype. So okay. first of all, hunter-gatherers are very egalitarian. They, they, they are, so, you know, for example, you'll hear sometimes evolutionary psychologists right. kind of compare, you know, they'll look at chimpanzees and they'll say, oh, you know, look how competitive chimpanzees are, you know, and that's where we get it from. We're so, we're, you know, because they're our closest living relatives in the animal kingdom. Um, but, you know, hunter gatherers are incredibly egalitarian, actually. They share. And there is a very, very high premium put on sharing. Sure, hunters get a little bit more meat, you know, but generally speaking, they're very egalitarian. That's our history. <laughs> so somehow we got from that history to the history of, uh, to the reality of um, unequal distribution of labor and um, of goods. So, How did that so happen? It was in the agriculture. Yes, exactly. It was in the agriculture. It's exactly right. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's an increasing, increasing amount of evidence that women in hunter-gatherer and nomadic, early, early nomadic cultures were hunters. They were archers. Some other lady professor that I talked to, she said that, yes. Yeah, so listen, so this is really interesting. First of all, there are all these archaeologists for like 100 years have been finding skeletons and not realizing they were female skeletons because they had weapons buried with them. But in fact, they were women. That's the first thing to understand. The second thing to understand, and this is just me conjecturing, okay? So now I'm, this is me pretending to be a historian. I'm play, playing historian. I'm taking off my, my lab coat. And I'm pretending to be a historian. Um, I think it's really interesting that in ancient Greece, for example, women were veiled and veiling was very prevalent. And um, there were very, very, very strict rules for women as opposed to men for all kinds of things, right? So huge differences um, in the uh, individual rights and freedoms of, of women versus men. And who did they look to as barbarians? Like who were the barbarians that they fought against? They were cultures, nomadic cultures, where women were warriors, where women were archers and they were hunters. And in fact, I remember reading that one of the pieces of evidence for saying that a culture is 
barbaric is that the men and the women are not treated differently or they're treated less differently. So I guess I would just, I resist, I, I certainly, you know, respect evolution and developmental neuroscience. And in fact, seven and a half lessons about the brain is rooted very strongly in evolutionary biology and evolutionary neuroscience. But I think you have to be really careful when you do that. You have to be really careful to look at what the evidence actually shows. And there's a really wonderful book um, by uh, an evolutionary biologist uh, at um, St. Andrews University. His name is Kevin Kevin Leyland, his name is. He has a book called um, Darwin's Unfinished Symphony. And in this book, there's a whole chapter on hunter-gatherer societies and the kind of distribution of labor and and so on. And it's really enlightening. It's a, it's a, I mean, my lab has been to visited two, um, one semi-pastoral culture in um, Namibia, in Northwestern Namibia and uh, the Himba culture, that's the Himba culture. And then the Hadza, Hadza culture in uh, Tanzania, which is a hunter-gatherer culture. Um, so I know a little bit about this from firsthand experience, but Kevin um, has done this, uh, Kevin Leyland has done this huge, you know, summary of research um, on um, hunter-gatherer societies. And some of the sort of popular notions are really myths, I would say. For me, um, I, it's not about exactly where it came from it's um, it's more about if it was the case right so why did that persist to this date um and what does it mean moving forward what's the impact of technology in the way that the role of women is going to change because my worry and, and the reason why i started this thing was that I wrote a book called Career Fear and How to Beat It, and it was about the future of work. And as I looked at my references, I saw that 99% of them are men. And, uh, and I realized that actually majority of the uh, jobs that are going to disappear are those of women's. You know, that, so, so actually technology is going to displace more women. So then that made me really start thinking about, and, and at the same time I was going through a, a breakup where I had to make a choice between my career and a, and a relationship because I was working extreme hours. And um, despite all the sacrifices that I felt that I made, I still had to, I was the one who had to make that choice. So it was fine for my ex to be completely um, you know, successful, have two kids, all that stuff, but, but I had to make the choice to, you know, I had to actually still work around. So, so I found that um, I was like, okay, here's a very typical example of how women are finding themselves in a position where they ha- they are uh, having to cho- choose between family and, and career and um, how that plays into this whole impact of technology. And then when you look at the top uh, 10 corporations, so there's five in China and five in, in the U.S., um, you know, we have uh, in the U.S. we have Amazon, Google, uh, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, right? And then in the in the East we have Alibaba, Baidu, Xiaomi, Huawei, and and Tencent. So these ten corporations are running the world essentially, and they are determining the future of humanity with the type of technologies that they are building, right? And there's not a single female perspective in that. 
And that really worries me. So that's where I started to really get into. I was like, you know what? I want to build a platform that in my lifetime will make a contribution to seeing another 10 of those being women. You know, the, the fact that they all of those come from two countries, that's that's a separate matter. But but where I well, first of all, I'm originally from Iran. Now I'm a British citizen. But um, the truth is that that was my my thing. I was like, I'm going to dedicate my life. You know, if I'm going to have this breakup, then, then I'm going to dedicate my life. Well, to let me let me let me just say a couple of things. Though, OK, I mean, first of all, your observation is prescient. I think it's really, really important that you notice this because. That if we look to the past, you know, as a behavioral scientist, so I'm a neuroscientist, but I'm also a psychologist. And I would say, you know, the one, if there's one like law, it's that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. If you look to look to medicine, if you look to any kind of innovation from the past, you can see that whoever is in charge of it, it's their, they favor their own group, basically. Now, of course, we can divide ourselves into groups in lots of ways, but I'll just make the point. Why don't we have a cure for menstrual cramps? Something really, really, really basic that affects half the world's population on a monthly basis. Tell me that if men had to experience that kind of discomfort every month, that we would not have a pill that we could take or whatever, that would just take that pain away. But no, instead, women suffer. And some women suffer a lot on a monthly basis. Okay, so that's my that's like one tiny, 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 tiny little point. Um, there are lots of other points, you know, examples that you could make. So I think you're exactly right. You've, I think you've really hit the nail on the head. I will say that speaking as someone who got divorced at the age of 25 uh, because uh, I wanted, for many reasons, many of which were you know, my, I'm not all blaming my practice husband on, on everything on him, but, you know, it was going to be one of these situations where his career was going to be primary. My career was going to be secondary. And I just didn't, I just wasn't, I just wasn't going to do that. I thought I would never have another relationship, you know, in the end, I ended up finding somebody who's just absolutely delighted in my success. Actually, of the two of us, he's very successful in his own right, but of the two of us, it's clear that my career is the career that is guides this family and the make that we make decisions, not always exclusively based on my career, but I would say on average, if you just look, we both make sacrifices for each other, but if you look on average, you, you would say, well, probably more does it more there's more sacrifice really for my career than for his i did have children i mean i had a child that was also compromised i didn't have many children i had one and that was explicitly we discussed this explicitly we made you know and the one thing that i realized again is i watched all the women around me turning themselves into pretzels about trying to convince themselves that they for the ones who stayed home and gave up their careers, they were trying to convince themselves that that was what they wanted to do. And for the ones who kept working and, you know, that was what they convinced themselves. they tried. And I just looked at them both and I was like, I don't want to be either of these. I just want to be honest. And the honest truth was when I was at home with my daughter, I often also at the same time wanted to be at work. 
And when I was at work, I also often wanted to be home with my daughter. It's not that I just can't be pleased. It's that I just, what I wanted was to have two lives where I could do both. And I, you can't do both. So for me, again, I would say ambivalence, you know, people usually try to get rid of it as fast as possible. They try to, they sort of try to shoehorn themselves into one side of that debate that's going on inside your head. Um, whereas I just was like, you know what? I'm ambivalent. That's actually authentic. That's me. I'm ambivalent and I'm still ambivalent, frankly. And I probably will go to my grave being ambivalent because no matter what I'm doing, there's always other things I also want to be doing. And I just think as you pursue your really important mission, it's important. And, you know, one of the things that is important is that women have to not lie to themselves and not lie to each other. I'll just say that what comes to mind to me right now is the, um, I can't remember the trilogy, the movie, there's a movie with Jennifer Lawrence and she's, um, I can't remember the name of it, but you know, where she's the hunger Games. That's it. Oh, yeah. yeah. In the final scene. So, so this is like a scene. I'm like a, I'm going to spoil the move. The last movie, if people haven't seen it already, but it's been out for a long time. So I'm assuming, you know, there's like a horrible dictator and he gets replaced by the, you know, freedom fighter. Who's a woman. And she becomes a horrible dictator. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically yeah. she, yeah. So, I mean, making sure to have women in charge also is, is laudable, but only if they don't lie to themselves and fall victim to the same, right? I mean, this is probably what every prime minister and every president learns. They, they, they say they want to do all these things differently. Um, and then they get into power and they realize, oh, there are all these like, contextual constraints on what they can do, you know, that they're not really aware of when, when they're not there. So that would be my only, my only women are as capable of prejudice as men. Women are as capable as likely to engage in the, you know, she's emotional and he's just having a bad day kind of um, mistake as, yeah. as a man is. And yeah. so Women who are in power have an extra responsibility to interrogate their own beliefs and to listen clearly to their own feelings. Otherwise, they're you know the same kinds of mistakes um, will be made. Absolutely, I agree with you. And actually, the, like, there's a chapter in my book uh, which is called "Knowing Yourself," and I, I I did a lot of you know that interrogation of myself, uh, you know, and I really looked at that. Um, for all of my life. Um, and the truth is that, for example, in my case, I never wanted children. I just don't like the idea of becoming pregnant. I just don't like, you know, that's like that the, the thought of going through pregnancy, because especially because you mentioned PMS, you know, because I've had such a bad experience with that. And also uh, there's, I think, a deeper issue there. I've had a very difficult relationship with my mother, you know, so I had a very bad childhood, you know, and I was like, I never want to bring a child into this world. So, so I was like, one day I will adopt just to say, because when yeah, I was, was going to say, you don't have to, yeah. to be a mother. You don't have to be pregnant. Exactly. You, you can, yeah, you can adopt. Yeah. yeah. And I remember when I was a child, I used to uh, think that I really wish that somebody would like adopt me and take me out of here because I, I hated, um, you know, my, my environment so much. And so I was like, you know, when I when I'm uh, able to, I'm going to adopt. 
So, so that's that's that part of it, and I, I agree with you. And also, um, as a, I'm a Nietzschean, as a philosopher, you know, study philosophy, and and Nietzsche has this thing of if you look too much into the abyss, the abyss looks back at you, and and every time you try to break down systems, you you, you end up creating systems, right? So, so I agree with you with all of that thing, uh, that that line of thinking. But at the same time, the reason for me, the reason why I'm interested in having women in power and in you know being recognized in science and technology is that the goes back to my definition of the meaning of life the meaning of life for me is about experiences we are here to create experiences and i feel that we are limiting the kinds of experiences that women can uh, create you know and i think by just by limiting that experience the ability the opportunity that the the way I see it is like life is a potentiality, right? So it's a, it's a field of potentiality. So within that, these fields of potentiality, there are these bubbles that come up and, and go. And I think that as women, we have a more limited ability of reaching those opportunities, those potentialities. So for example, one some of my best experiences are when I'm learning math. I was terrible at math. Uh, you know, I was like, you know, everybody told me you'll never, you, you know, math and science, uh, like my science teacher told me that I would never amount to anything. And, you know, I never, I, to this date, I have a, a bit of a complex about scientists because I just love scientists. I'm like, I just want to be around, you know, like I'd give anything just to be in MIT, just like walking around, you know, and just taking in the, the air because I was always told that you can't be one, right? So I went into philosophy. But now on a weekend, I sit down and teach myself math and, and uh, I'm teaching myself coding. Why am I doing that? It's because I that experience of when you learn, like, you know, it's just the amazing experience of like just learning a simple linear algebra. And I'd like to say, and, and maybe I'm not very good at it, but, but when I get it right, it's the most amazing feeling, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I've retrained four times since I got my PhD and, uh, I'm actually, you know, I've been learning engineering. I'm, well, I'm not learning coding. My husband actually is a software engineer and my daughter is actually uh, learning to code and all of my students learn to code. But, you know, I decided instead of learning to code, I would learn embryology because I need that for developmental neuroscience. But I've been working with engineers for some time. They've been teaching me math. Uh, you know, I completely agree with you. Completely agree with you. I, I will say that, um, you know, the message in how motions are made which is a message that is backed up by really good science is that you are the architect of your experience. It's not like you can just snap your fingers, you know, and, um, change how you feel. That's not, you can't perform some kind of Jedi mind trick. And then like, you know, all of a sudden you're like in a different space. That's not how it works, but there are ways that you can be the architect of your own experience in a more mindful and deliberate way. And it takes a lot of work and it takes, you know, diligence and commitment, but you can do it. You have more control over your emotional life than you might think. And therefore you have more responsibility uh, yeah. for your life than you might know or want. And similarly, I would say because we are social animals and because we intimately affect each other's biology. You know, we are the caretakers of each other's nervous systems, whether we like it or not. That's just how it is. That's how we evolved as a species. And so what that means is we're also more responsible for each other than we might want. Particularly if we live in a culture that 
prioritize, like I do, that prioritizes individual rights and freedoms. You know, there's this fundamental challenge, um, which is that, you know, we live in a culture that prioritizes individual rights and freedoms, or at least I do. And if you're living in, in Britain, then you do too. Um, but we have these socially intertwined nervous systems and that has to be negotiated. And what's really interesting to me, you know, when I was um, in graduate school, I did a lot of reading on, um, which was some time ago now, I did a lot of reading on leadership styles, leadership styles, because I was trying to understand how to be a good mentor. And what's interesting to me is that at that time, there were discussions about like um, the way women are leaders versus the way men are leaders. And of course, it's again, you know, stereotypes and so on. But the sort of the female way of being a leader, it turns out, is the way that um, business schools have gone over the last 20 years, right? This kind of like, you know, um, leaderless group where it's much more egalitarian and pe different people take on leadership. You know, it's more fluid and, and so on. And I, I often think about that. I often wonder if the, if I did like a hard analysis of things, would that really would that really pan out? I will tell you the one thing that does pan out, which is that um, there's this really great book by Naomi Oreskes, who's a historian of science, and her book is called Why Trust Science. And what she says in this book, which I I think is is really really on the mark, is she says, you know, the objectivity of science, the ability of science to produce facts depends on diversity. It depends on different people with different backgrounds and different assumptions, all coming to consensus over data and what it means. When you have one group of people who are similar to each other and they come to consensus, if you look at the history of science, it usually is they come to consensus that they're the ones who are at the top of the heap and at the, to the expense of everybody else around them. So I think women in science and technology isn't important for fairness. I mean, it is, but it's, that's not the point. The point is that it's important for the integrity and validity of science and technology. Exactly. And of course, gender is just one dimension of diversity. And there are many other dimensions of diversity that are important too, as you po pointed out. Um, but this is one that, you know, you, is important. It's as important as the others. And, and that's why I think this is really, you know, sounds like, um, sounds like, you know, someday you should write your memoir because it will be very. <laughs> oh, well, actually, when I first came to the UK, uh, I was only 23 then. And, uh, I got, um, approached by an agent who wanted me to write it then. And, uh, cause I've had quite a, you know, background and, and it was too painful to write it at the time because I've had a very difficult childhood, you know? So I well, thought, yeah. One day when I write it, I'm going to write it as an as a comedy because it's like it's just one of those things that's like when something is too painful, the only yeah. way now I can deal but, with it is to laugh at it. Yeah, but Somi, how old are you? If you don't mind me asking, thirty nine. Okay, so I'm fifty seven, and I'll tell you that I had a very difficult childhood too. If you were to tally up my ACE scores, you know, like this, these are like childhood adversity events. I have seven out of ten. The more distance you get, the easier it becomes. The easier it becomes. It yes. never, yeah, it's yeah. never, it's never, um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not standing up on a pedestal and telling you this. I'm just saying that 
Did 20 years matter? <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, already. You might not, you might not feel the same, you know, you might no, feel no, no, I agree. No, no. I actually, even until two, three years ago, there are lots of things that happened in my childhood that I couldn't talk about. Recently, I made a video about one of them and I, I was able to talk about it. You know, there was a time that I couldn't. So, so yeah, definitely. It's, uh, I think time heals definitely. And, um, you know, but at the same time, uh, yeah, that's right. I, I think uh, you're right about the diversity thing. And actually, I'm, I'm writing now my uh, proposal for my next book. And uh, in the intro, I give the story of a date I had and how the conversation for that day um, where I asked the person to leave, <laughs> you know, that how that uh, became the uh, just because of the conversation about math you know? and, and the person saying that actually, yeah, women are not good at math. And I'm like, you don't know that. Right. And then my argument for diversity. Um, and ironically, this was a chat I had with a black man. Uh, so you, you would think. That well, would you, be more- well, yeah, you know, you know, just because you're you're part of an underrepresented group doesn't mean that you 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 yourself don't have blinders. But we all have we all have blinders. All of us have blinders. I guess I just. What I would say is that part of, well, I'll tell you from my own journey, part of what I realized, and maybe this is true for you too, I don't know, is that um, for a long time, I really wished that my life had been different at the beginning. I really wished for different the life. And then a really, really wise um, friend of mine said, but you know, you, then you would be a different person. Like you are who you are. You, there is, you don't have an essence that makes you who you are. Your genes aren't your essence. There's no essence of who you are. You are defined in large part, not just by your experiences, but by your actions, by the yeah. actions that you take. I'm not a particularly really, I'm not at all a religious person. I'm completely an atheist, but I, I, I there are some lessons, right? And one lesson is, it matters what you do oftentimes more than what you think (laughs) Um, because you're affecting other people. You're, you're affecting other people and what you do reverberates. So there are mystical ways of putting that. Um, But then there's just the reality. You could talk about it in a mystical way. You could talk about it in a biological way. This is called niche construction, right? Where you, you know, all animals actively mold the environment around them. Um, And our environment happens to also involve other people. So, you know, we, we try to actively mold that, but we influence, we influence each other in, in, in very subtle and, um, and pervasive ways. Um, but you are who you are because of the path, the trajectory that you took. And you, if you hadn't have taken that trajectory, you might not be the person that you are. And I found that to be, a, I still find that to be a very wise and thoughtful way of thinking about it. It also reminds me, right, that, you know, when you're a child, this is also something I talk about in Seven and a Half Lessons, your brain wires itself to its world. Baby's brain is not um, a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that's waiting for wiring instructions from the world. And that world is not just physical world. It's also a social world that is curated for you by the people who take care of you. And you have no control over that world, but eventually you do have control. Eventually you do take control of your environment. You might not have control over everything, You might not even have control over a lot of things, but you always have control over something and you can curate your own environment for yourself that will allow you to be the best person 
your best self, you know, your best self. That's really what you want. Um, and, you know, that may look different for different women and it may look different in one branch of technology than in another branch, but you kind of have to know what that is, yeah. right? Whereas if your path is laid out for you because you have a penis, then, you know, you don't have to think about it too much, except at maybe, you know, certain points. But if you have a vagina, your path is not laid out for you and you have to be really, really thoughtful and mindful about it. I think that's unfair, but that's how it is, you know? That's how it is. So, and so does that mean that by default, that puts us in a more deficient body budget? It means that the body budgeting, well, let me just say that the body, but yeah, so very, yes. I wouldn't say deficient though. I would say the body budgeting. Yeah, we start lower, like with, with less energy. Well, we start, we start lower though. I would say the body budgeting burden is, is bigger, mm-hmm. but it becomes bigger early on. I mean, your body budgeting burden is bigger just because you menstruate, like just because you have a monthly cycle. So we think about ovarian hormones as, you know, being related to our periods and various things, but they're metabolic regulators also. I mean, they, they help regulate your metabolism. And as you age, you know, women lose their estrogen and, you know, all in one you know, poof, men lose their testosterone slowly over time, but all of us lose these metabolic regulators, but for women early on, actually starting in adolescence, right? Earlier, sometimes now late childhood, the metabolic fluctuations that are occurring because, because, you're, met, because you're on a cycle um, actually already place a larger metabolic burden on women to begin with. But to answer your question, yes, yes, we do. We have a much larger burden than men do just because we have these extra things we have to deal with. Just like people of color have a much bigger burden than people with light skin like us because they have to deal with obstacles that we often don't have to deal with. And we might not even see, right? They might not even see. What's fascinating, I didn't, because I'm from Iran, I considered myself a woman of color. And then they, uh, my, my black friends told me, my oh, no. therapist is actually, she's black. And she said, Somi, you do not get it. She says, Somi, you don't, you say that because you're not racist and you don't understand. You see everybody the same. But she was like me and my sister, uh, she was like, my sister is darker than me, a, a darker shade of black. She mm-hmm. gets, she gets a harder time. Yeah. So, and- you know, I grew up in Canada and in Canada, there certainly are racial divisions, but black, white isn't, is, well, it might be that now, but when I grew up there, which was a very long time ago, that's not, those weren't the divisions that were really important. Okay. In terms of people making these. So when I came to the United States, I just, I was like, well, these people look like me and they talk like me, but they are not like me. Like I often have no idea what they're, you know, and for the first time in my life, I felt like I was being treated like a white person. I didn't even know what that meant. And and, uh, so what I did was I, but I just felt it. I was like, what is going on here? And I, so I found the only person of color on, in my department. And I just went to him and I said, Will you please explain to me what is going on here? Like, I just do not get it. I don't understand. Like I'm treating, I have, I'm getting in trouble with students for having egalitarian, for wanting to treat everybody the same. Like, why is that bad? I don't get it. And he's like, you don't get it because you're from Canada. Let me tell you why it's bad. And then he did. And he showed me things like we would go out for a walk and he would show me things. And I would be like, oh my God, there are all these burdens 
in that I don't ever see that are never, that's what it means to be white. It means that your path is paved. It's not full of burdens, but the same analogy applies to women and men in business and in, in science and in technology, not for all men. Right. I mean, but, but, you know, cause there are other things too, like class matters a lot. And, you know, even in, even in, in countries where it's not supposed to like the United States, it certainly does. But on average, the path is paved for men and there are burdens that women must bear that men don't have to. So, but there are ways to deal with that. There are ways to deal with that. And some of those ways involve making sure that you get enough sleep and that you exercise and that you eat healthfully and that you're, you're setting your brain up to manage your body budget efficiently. And some of them have to do with having a support system, having a Greek chorus of people that can tell you the truth, who you can, you know, you can rely on and, and actually being that for other people as well. And um, nobody talks much about that. That's why I'm building this network. So women can do that for each other. It's been amazing talking to you. Do you want to just very quickly tell people, because I've read how emotions are made. So that picks up where that one left off, right? Yeah. So, so, so uh, I said the main lesson from that was that emotions are not, uh, they, they're not there and triggered, they're made. So what's the main lesson from uh, seven and a half lessons? Well, seven and a half lessons has seven and a half little lessons about the brain. So it's really, it's a, so how emotions are made is a standard popular science book. It's 300 pages, you know, um, seven and a half lessons is a tiny book. It's a book of essays that is, they're really written for people who, who wouldn't, they're written for scientists, obviously. They're also written for people who enjoy science, but they're also written for people who wouldn't normally pick up a science book. You know, they, they really, they will tell you a little tidbit about um, your brain and what that means about human nature and what it means for the kind of human that you can be or that you would like to be. It doesn't tell you what kind of human to be. It just allows you to think about what it means to be human and particularly what kind of human you want to be. So the first half lesson is about how your brain is not for thinking. It's for regulating your body. The the second lesson is about how your brain, uh, how, um, well, let's go. The third lesson is uh, little brains wire themselves to their world. There's a, a lesson about being a social animal. So I've, some of what I've been saying today is, is those are nascent ideas in how emotions are made, but they're front and center, center in seven and a half lessons about the brain. My husband calls it the first neuroscience beach read. Okay. Okay. Amazing. I can't wait to read it. There's also an appendix with a lot of scientific information. And then there's a, a website with web notes with many, many, many scientific references if, for anybody who wants to take a deep dive. So sure. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if you, if your schedule allows, once I've read it, I'll come back to you. That'd be and great. That would be that'd great. Be amazing. Yeah. I really enjoyed talking to you. It's been amazing. Yeah. It's been wonderful to talk to you too. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett. Be sure to check out her books, How Emotions Are Made and Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. 
and don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. You can also find the full video of these conversations on my YouTube channel and connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Clubhouse at Somi Ariane. Finally, if you're not yet a member of Fempeak, head over to fempeak.ai and register and join a community that actively supports women's professional growth.